Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown and my guest today should be a familiar one for you. She is just a delight and so smart. Please welcome back Colleen Cullinan. Dr. Cullinan is a pediatric psychologist at Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. She specializes in integrated primary care within the Division of Behavioral Health. Dr. Cullinan completed her Ph.D. in clinical psychology at Western Michigan University in 2015. Dr. Cullinan supervises psychology externs and interns, and she directs medical education efforts for Nemours residency training programs. Her presentation and publication records center around integrated care, family-based interventions, and experiential cultural humility training. Please join me in welcoming Colleen Cullinan. Hi, Colleen. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. This is uh, episode number four that we've done together. I have to let you know that your episodes are some of the top number of downloads. So um, the information is very resonant with folks. So totally appreciate you coming back. Well, it's super fun. I really like when we get to talk. It's exciting for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Renewing an old friendship or continuing a friendship. So we talked on the last episode, which was episode 88, and I would really suggest listeners, if you haven't heard that one, that you go back because it sort of sets the stage for what we're talking about today. Kind of, you know, the whole ADHD, the assessment, but we're going to get into more management and skills building. So we talked about executive function and how that is really kind of the cornerstone deficit of attention deficit disorders when we're talking about that. You know, we're going to dive into some specific areas of executive function. But before we hop in, let's do a quick review of executive function in a nutshell. So we'll start right there. Yeah. Well, I completely agree with the premise of the podcast that we're recording the episode we did before and this one, which is that executive functioning is really at the heart of ADHD, and I think a lot of sort of uh, behavioral, externalizing behavioral conditions. Executive functioning is essential to be like kind of a self-sufficient, independent person. Executive functions are these mental abilities, these higher order cognitive abilities that really dictate all of the skills you need to be a functional person. So when I think about executive functioning, it's these skills that are kind of next level around planning, around organizing, around inhibiting your initial reaction to something, like taking that mental pause and evaluating the bigger picture. These are really tough skills. Almost nobody is great at them. Even adults aren't perfect at this kind of stuff, but it's the stuff you need to do to survive the world. Adults aren't great at these skills. And when I say executive functioning skills, I talk about it in our last episode, but it's this idea of like an air traffic control system, this ability to do multiple things and kind of keep multiple pieces of information in your mind at the same time, to be able to manage large sets of data or information, to be able to think about the future, think about the past, shift, adjust, adapt, this kind of cognitive, mental, psychological flexibility which is at the heart of a lot of stuff that we need to do. Nobody's great at it. Adults struggle. We have a lot of tools and apps. and I was going to say, (laughs) I think that's why I have a color-coded planner that has all these, you know, future planning. And and I still forget stuff. So, uh, yeah, we're not always great at that. No, exactly. It's like these short-term memory skills and being able to shift, adjust. And like when I talk about air traffic control or I talk about being the coach of a really big team, like a football team, and we have plays, but we also have to shift. And if the weather's different or the sun's in our eyes, we got to do something else. You know, we talked last time about the conductor of an orchestra, like raising up some parts of the band and pulling other parts down or, you know, increasing the volume, decreasing the volume, shifting, adjusting so that we can really make beautiful music. And all of that's really tough stuff to do. Nobody's great at it. 
children are really not great at it. They're learning, like they're learning these life skills. Nobody has them fully online until we're in our mid twenties. And so all kids struggle with these skills, which is frustrating because as adults, we're actually kind of good at it. And we have some shorthand around executive functioning that a lot of kids don't. Do you think, I mean, when I'm thinking about the continuum of child development, I mean, first of all, the advantage of being a child is your brain is like crazy making all these different connections. So a lot of these skills, I mean, when I was listening to you talk about them before, these are skills that would benefit any child, like how to clean your room. I mean, break it down and, and that, but these kids that meet criteria for attention deficit disorders, it's really hard for them. And so they need it even more. So I think in, in some ways, these are really great parenting strategies regardless. Plus you can apply them to yourself. So Yeah. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think we can visualize a conductor or an orchestra without a conductor, which is what tuning up, what that looks like. So for a lot of us, I mean, we don't have a Colleen in our practices. I mean, if I could wave a magic wand, I would put a U in every pediatric practice and people would be like delighted and thrilled. So on the premise that we're kind of on our own a lot of the time, how can we help build some of these skills and strategies in conjunction with maybe med management? Maybe not, just depends. A lot of parents are are not quite ready to take the step into medication. And even with meds, buddying it up with these skills and strategies, to me, it just offers even better outcomes. So, so let's kind of get granular about what that would look like. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was thinking about this a lot from the last time that we spoke. The theme of last episode that we talked together was really expectation setting, helping families to understand the child that they have in front of them. Like we were just saying, these are skills that all kids in a family can use. And I really do think like thinking about treating the family as opposed to the problem child, I put that in air quotes, like the the ADHD child, but thinking more kind of from a systems level, executive function is a systems thing. Like the whole point of that is that it's not one singular skill. It's like kind of this category of skills. And so if we're thinking about that, we really do, I think, benefit from thinking about it from a familial level, as opposed to like, my child needs to learn this, and this is how we're going to do it for this problem kid. It's sort of like, how are we as a family going to improve our executive functioning altogether? I was just going to say too, that, you know, the diagnosis is attention deficit disorder, which kind of comes from a deficit model. And so I think if we're also maybe able to frame it as a strength-based model, you know, like what skills do you have? And, you know, so how do we play off of those? But then also, you know, how do we build up just like if you're going to play a sport, you know, you might be really, really fast, but you have trouble with your swing. Well, we're going to Yay that you can run fast because you need to get up to all the bases, but let's work on your swing. So, yeah, I think that strengths-based, I I think, is it's, it kind of lends a positive twist. And maybe in talking to families, we can kind of weave that in. Yeah, absolutely. So I will, I promise I will get into the granular skills like I promise I will. No, no, that's fine. I think what you're saying about ADHD attention deficit is a real misnomer. Like that's not a really great description of what we're, I mean, that's why I've kind of shifted into this executive functioning conversation. I think so. It can be a more strengths-based conversation because it is not attention deficit. It is not the absence of attention. Kids with ADHD have the capacity for attention. We talked about this with executive functioning and we talked about sense of time. Actually, kids with ADHD in some ways might at some times in some situations have a a superior attentional skills. Like they might be able to hyper-focus on the things that are interesting to them or that activate that sort of chemical excitement in their brain like that. They might have superior attentional skills in some situations, in some um, contexts. And so it's not deficit, it's this dysregulation. It's that I can't, it's never just sort of like even in the middle, my attentional balance is in a good zone. Kids with ADHD or these executive functioning, uh, this underdevelopment of executive functioning, it's that, you know, sometimes my attention's off the charts and it's awesome. And sometimes it's kind of like, not so great. And I'm really struggling. And it's, it's like the world is not built for these extremes. Like the world is not built, the classroom is not built 
the average family home is not built for like, sometimes I'm awesome at it. Sometimes I'm terrible at it. Sometimes my motivation's super high. Sometimes my motivation is kind of low. Sometimes I sleep awesome and I am in a great mood when I open my eyes in the morning and sometimes I don't. ADHD is really about kind of whipping around in these extremes, which doesn't feel good for anybody. And so it's like, how do we curate the home environment, the school environment, you know, the context that these kids live in to meet where they're at with the extremes. And so I, I, that is how I would sort of set the stage to begin to give some of the skills. Because again, I think expectation, the skills won't work if parents have an expectation that their child's going to react in like an even middle of the road, five out of 10 all the time place. It's sort of like, no, sometimes attention's going to be at a 10 and sometimes it's going to be at a two. And like, how do we adjust and meet where kids are? Because I think oftentimes, it's hard. We give the skills that are the evidence-based, empirically supported skills, but they're not going to work if parents don't know what success means when we're using the skills, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I think about, I loved your description of sort of the superior attention. And I think if you put it that way with a parent, like where the trouble might be is switching attention you know, the saliency, what's important, tuning some stuff out, tuning some stuff in, that may not always match what the the needs are at the time for the task at hand. But, you know, to be able to say, you know how when your kiddo plays Legos and they can do that for hours, I think you gave that example in the last episode, you know, see how they are able to do that. Let's see if we can use some of that attention when they need to do math. And here's some ways to use that in a different way. Does that sound, do I have that right? Right. And I feel like uh, it's sort of this idea. Sometimes I think it gets back to something, another thing that we talked a lot about in the last episode, which is sometimes when things feel really difficult, like math homework, which doesn't light up or make noises or isn't exciting. Like it's just not as exciting. And so attention is going to be lower. I think there's this like individual level and even familial level of, oh, that's hard. So let's avoid it or let's not do it. Or let's see if we can call the teacher and get out of doing math homework, which sometimes is kind of, you know, I don't want a child to fail because of some of these deficits, but, or some of these delays, I should say differently. But you know, in some ways, it's sort of like we got to do math homework more. <laughs> we got to learn how to tolerate the experience of chemical boredom. And you're going to need <laughs> Ooh, to. I love that. that. <laughs> chemical, chemical boredom. Woo. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, we have to learn how to deal with that because someday your kid isn't going to be a kid. Your kid's going to be an adult and they're going to pick a career that's going to play to their strengths, hopefully, or they're going to pick a line of life that's going to be more interesting and exciting. But schools are not like that. Schools don't let you pick the interesting stuff. The whole uh, the whole deal with American education is we got to kind of be good at a lot of stuff. We got to kind of be good at lots of things to be a successful person. And, you know, there's a part of me that agrees with that. I don't like paying bills. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at sitting down and like really looking at my debit card, my credit card, and making sure that my finances are in a good spot. Like I'm not good at that overarching stuff, but it is an important part of being an adult person is being able to sit down and tolerate the fact that like, I don't like thinking about this. I don't like thinking about money in the future. I don't like thinking about money in the past. I don't like having to budget my life. I don't like having to sit down and look at all these numbers. I don't, that's not fun for me or exciting and I hate it. And in some ways it means I have to do it more because it actually is super essential to be able to tolerate some of these feelings of, I don't like this. It's boring, gross, ew. And I think practicing that on purpose is aversive to everybody, but necessary in some ways. And so I think when you are getting down into the granular skills, that's sort of what you're trying to teach. And it is like, I hope, a more strengths-based approach insofar as, look, this is a weakness. That means we got to exercise more. That means we have to strengthen more. If you had a weak muscle, we wouldn't say, okay, I guess you just give up on your arms. Like, I guess your biceps are just, you know, little trash muscles and we won't worry about them. It's like, no, and then you got to do extra curls. You got to do extra, you know, and you can do that in a planful, stepwise, gradual way, but it doesn't mean you just blow it off. It means, okay, then we have to be a little bit more intentional and thoughtful about how we attack some of these different areas where we need to grow. And there are fun ways to do that. Yeah. It's like a PT for the mind. <laughs> yes. No, I think that's exactly I love right. it. I love it. Yeah. I, I it's think so that's a great it, way to frame it. 
it's so funny as you're talking about things you don't like to do. I remember distinctly, I was prepping to do a, I think I had to take a board review course for my certification. And my weakness big time is statistics. And I distinctly remember standing at a counter talking with you about p-values and (laughs) odds and I'm like you were trying so hard and I'm like I think I get this I think I still missed two out of the four questions (laughs) that were on it fortunately there were a lot of other questions that could override my my weakness but yeah so I get if I was really going to try and improve my statistical knowledge and I needed it more than I do I guess I could have taken a course but Fortunately, I didn't need it because I hate stats. So, so yeah, I get that model of, yeah, you'd need to practice it if it's essential. But you're right. When we're there in school, we do expect that you're at least middle of the road. And ideally, we want you to be getting A's and everything. But, you know, it's not practical for everything. So how do we at least get you the skills that you need for life and to get out of high school? Right. Right. And so... I will start to get into it because the last time that we spoke about executive functioning, I walked through a bunch of different executive functions that I try to give examples about and then tie them to intervention. So I think last time we spent a lot of time just introducing some of the basic executive functions. And now I can help kind of tie what are the evidence-based interventions that help support growth in those areas. So like one executive function that we spent a lot of time talking about last time was this executive function of internal speech. At the same time, there's things happening externally. There's environmental things that are happening. People are speaking. There's a lot of feedback that's happening out in the world. At the same time, external things are happening. We are having an internal dialogue about that silently. (laughs) And that internal dialogue should be sort of evaluating what's happening around you or evaluating the external speech or the feedback that you're getting and using that information to guide your own behavior, to guide the next thing that you are going to say. Internal speech is a very sophisticated executive function. Nobody's great at it. And kids with ADHD particularly struggle with this. They struggle to keep the speech internal. They struggle to use the internal speech or the internal dialogue that they're having. Effectively, they struggle to wait for somebody else to finish their external feedback. You know, it's just really a difficult skill. And then when we think about a seven-year-old who when it comes to something like internal speech is actually looking more like a five-year-old or a four-year-old, we really do need to think about how can we start to teach this skill of pause, reflect, look around, use your internal dialogue to make a decision about how you're going to react to the situation. Very complicated stuff. And I mentioned last time, one internal speech thing is that because I don't have great internal speech, it actually does ramp up the amount of external speech that comes at me. Because I'm not doing a great job of like self-regulating my own sort of internal dialogue, I end up getting a lot of no, stop, don't, quit it, come over here, do it this way. You're not doing it right. Let me walk you through it. We talked last time about maybe one way to kind of avoid doing a ton of external speech and feedback is to come up with some nonverbal cues some nonverbal cueing system, which I think is advice that you can give as a pediatrician really easy. But the other thing that I think is an important intervention that is very connected to this idea of internal speech is a tried and true intervention of special time. And I'll tell you about special time. When I was in graduate school, I was trained in parent-child interaction therapy, and I, I that is like the number one most evidence-based treatment for younger kids with disruptive behavior disorders and ADHD and externalizing behavior problems. Please look up PCIT, parent-child interaction therapy. It's the and, and every state has funding to, to do that therapy, but it's really hinged on this idea of special time. And so when I was in graduate school, that was sort of the true blue intervention that we learned for disruptive behavior. And then I got into my clinical internship year where I was doing clinical work for the first time full-time. And I would go into rooms and I'd be like, okay, we're going to start with special time. And families would come in and they would say, yeah, we're in kindergarten and we're about to get kicked out. (laughs) Like we're in kindergarten and we're hitting and we're flipping tables and we're spitting at the teacher and we're just not doing what we're supposed to do. We never sit in our seat. It's like a full 
nightmare at school. What should we do? And I would pop in with a lot of enthusiasm and I would say, special time. And the families would look at me like I was a nutcase. They would look at me and they'd be like, I don't think you heard what I said. We're going to get kicked out and we're flipping tables and we're doing all this other stuff. And I would say, okay, spend quality time together. And families would look at me like, you're nuts. That's never going to work and I'm not going to do it. And so this is what I mean when I say at least half of the work is expectation setting. At least half of the work, at least, is setting a stage for why special time might work. And so I've really shifted from just popping in and being like, all right, first things first, let's build up your relationship, which is very clearly the evidence-based place to start for almost any disruptive behavior problem. But I've really shifted away from just jumping in and I've shifted into tying it to an executive function like internal speech. If I'm going to recommend something like special time, I oftentimes start this way. And I say, you know, kids who have ADHD or disruptive behavior problems in general or some sort of executive functioning delay are getting a ton of external feedback. We talked about this in the last podcast, that if it was up to kids, all they would do all day is play. But that's not how our world is built. Our world is built like this. Wake up at the same time every single day. Get ready for school. We have to shove breakfast in our face. We have to get on the bus. And the bus has rules, but it also sort of doesn't have rules. It's like you have to sit in the seat, but you can also talk to your neighbor, but you have to, you can't be up and you can't be screaming, but also like there's some social stuff going on and you're on the bus and then you get to school and then you have to get into your classroom and you have to take off all your stuff. You have to put it in a prescribed place. You have to get into your desk. You have to do the activity for the morning. We have to do centers. We have to do X, Y, and Z. We have to, now we have to go to gym class. Now we have to go to lunch. And again, all of these places are places that have slightly different rules. And it's like, have fun, but don't have too much fun. And like, talk to your neighbors, but don't talk to them too loud. Or like, you know, sit in this desk and you can kind of move your body and wiggle around, but not a lot, not in a way that's disruptive to other people. And it's this whole exercise for like eight or nine hours of like follow rules in these ways that actually kind of go against uh, your natural instincts as a child. And then we get home and we have to do chores and we have to eat snack and we have to eat dinner and we have to get in the shower. We have to take bath. We have to, and the time for play in all of that is very limited. Or if there is play, it's like play in these very sort of adult driven ways, <laughs> play in these ways that adults have decided it's okay to play. We're going to do recess and we're going to do movie time, but it has to go this way or it has to go that way. And so, you know, we live in a world that is very, very, very like rule-governed and rule-based, and it has to be this way and it has to be that way. And again, kids with ADHD are getting a lot more instructions than kids without ADHD. We think that's the recipe for fixing it, but it's not. Oftentimes, when we're doing more external speeching, that external speech has a predictable pattern. It's becoming more commanding, more demanding, more punishing, more critical. A little four horsemen of the apocalypse there. The external speech also oftentimes is becoming more frustrated. It's having a tone to it that is not like teaching and practicing and constructive. Again, it has this like flavor that's like, I'm going to double up on the level of commands that I'm giving because you're not listening. I'm going to triple up on my tone and the intensity of how I'm asking you. I'm going to become more demanding because that's that's just sort of the parental instinct is to kind of like double down on more commands, more intensity in the way I'm asking, more threatening in the consequences that I'm issuing or offering or more punishing, more critical, where now I'm starting to even question you as a person. Like I'm starting to be like, what's wrong with you? Your brother listens. He gets ready every morning. What's your problem? You know what I mean? And it has this flavor to it. So not only is there more external speech, the external speech is almost designed to like create tension and conflict and power struggle. These things that are, again, we think they're going to help with the development of internal speech, but it's really this agenda that is undermining the development of this really important executive function. So I know you guys as pediatricians and pediatric providers don't have a ton of time, but I actually do think telling that story is what makes someone say, okay, I will actually go home and do something like a special time. Because the other thing that I kind of finish up that stage setting with is a very tangible, memorable example that should feed into the skill. So I will talk about something called the golden ratio, um, the magic ratio, the golden ratio, which comes out of John Gottman's research. And for anyone who's familiar, love John Gottman. I can't, I can't remember if I've given this recommendation in, on this podcast yet or not, but my favorite book is Raising the Emotionally Intelligent Child, um, and that's a Gottman book. 
But Gottman has this thing called the golden ratio. It comes out of like a lot of his relationship research. He looks at parent-child relationships. He looks at partner-to-partner relationships, marital relationships, spousal relationships. And he looks at communication patterns within these close relationships. And so his research has yielded this ratio that is supposed to help create healthy relationships. And the golden ratio is five to one. The idea behind five to one is that it requires five positive interactions to neutralize a negative interaction. So in a marriage, in a partnership, in a parent-child relationship, it's this idea that for every sort of negative interaction or negative piece of feedback or criticism or, you know, sarcasm or these defensive comments, like for every one of those, we need five positive interactions to balance out that one negative. And so again, if you think about the day in the life of a child, it's a lot of not positive stuff. It's a lot of like, do this, do that. You're not doing it right. And so that's just a world that we live in. How do we balance that given that we know that that the best outcomes come from relationships where the interactions are much more five to one? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I was exhausted when you were talking about all the things that have to happen. I mean, we just don't think about all the pieces and steps to everything we do. We assume it's like breathing, that we don't, it's involuntary. And yeah, I just know, of course, I eat breakfast, brush my teeth, put my clothes on, forget, you know, put my stuff in my backpack. And we just don't think about how complicated that may be for some kids and for some adults. Right, exactly. And I think it's it's also like tinged with, because you're not naturally as great at this, then you're going to get a lot of instruct more instructions. We think that that's the solution. Um, and it, it's not. It's actually going to only amplify the problems. It, Gottman's lab did some research. Like I said, the magic ratio is five to one. But what they found is in parent-child interactions of children with like small children, three to four or five years old, with disruptive behavior problems or like ADHD-like symptoms, that that the average looking ratio in those families is more like one to 14. So five to one is magic, but the average ADHD family is more like one to 14, which means for every one positive interaction, there's 14 no, don't stop. I'm annoyed with you. You know what I mean? Like yelling, escalating, you know, again, commanding, demanding, punishing, critical. So if you think about an ADHD family and we think the ideal situation is five to one, but the reality situation is one to 14, what are we going to do about that? And you've got a kid who's in a bunch of activities and we do have to go. We have to do a bunch of stuff that your kids aren't going to want to do. We have to do homework. We have to practice again, tolerating that chemical boredom. We have to do a lot of stuff in this world that we don't want to do or that doesn't come naturally or isn't fun. And so our ratios are kind of messed up. How do we get our ratio back in order? It is something like a special time. And special time is an intervention. The therapeutic dose is about five minutes a day. So when I recommend something like a special time, that's how I frame it. And you guys as pediatricians or um, you know, pediatric care providers are in the optimal position to use language like that to be like, here's the prescription. The therapeutic dose is five minutes a day where your only job, your only job is going to be to play and to figure out your ratio, to counterbalance the rest of the day. If we think about the day that probably had dozens of negative interactions or dozens of like commands and criticisms and like you're not doing it right. If we think about a day like that, then this is your opportunity in five quick minutes to only point out the positives. Your only job in this moment, in this five-minute therapeutic time, is to play along with your child what they want to do. And your job is to listen, reflect, and praise what's happening in this five minutes. And you can be really thoughtful about it. You can say stuff like, I really like when we play like this and you've got a calm body and calm hands. This is really fun. I'm having a great time. You're so smart and you're so creative. And I love when you, you know, use your voice to tell me what you're doing. I love when you make up stories. I love when we get to spend this time together. Right there in about 30 seconds, I said at least like five or six positive things. And if I can have a five-minute period where I'm not giving instructions and I'm not questioning what my child's doing and I'm not trying to teach them something and I'm not trying to give them a rule, just five minutes 
where all I'm doing is playing along and all I'm doing is being positive, this is a way in that strengths-based spirit to start to build up internal speech that's actually going to be helpful. And it starts to neutralize the fact that I've been giving commands all day long. And that's how our relationship has had to be. So we're creating a foundation where positive internal speech can happen. We're neutralizing the fact that there's been a ton of external feedback all day that maybe wasn't super helpful. And we're starting to build up a dialogue around what are the things that I like to see from you. And the hope is this therapeutic dose will start to spill out across other parts of the day. It sounds more like teaching than telling. Right. Right. And kids learn through play. Kids learn they're going to be more receptive and listening to what you're saying if they are in a space where they can play. And this is, you know, the opportunity. Five minutes a day is less than 1% of the day. It's like 15 minutes is about 1% of the day. So five minutes is a third of a percent, like 0.33% of the day that we're giving children our 100% attention Throughout the day, our attention is super divided. <laughs> like our attention is, I'm sort of watching you and paying attention to you and trying to figure out what you're doing. But I'm also like, I've got work calls and emails and things I'm dealing with. And we've got laundry, we've got dinner, we've got baby brother, we've got, uh, we have other family members who are coming in to visit or whatever it might be. Oftentimes we think we're giving our children a lot of attention, but almost never are we giving them undivided, wholly undivided attention. Five minutes a day of like perfect, like I, I'm, my phone is in the other room and your brother and sister, you know, dad's dealing with them and, and all the other things that we have to do are on 100% halt. I am here with you now and we are going to focus on the skill of playing nicely together for five full minutes. I'm going to focus on improving our ratio and giving you some stuff that can swirl around in your brain and be positive internal speech. I'm wondering, you know, and we'll get to some of the other, I mean, I feel like if we ended the podcast today right there, we've said a ton, um, you know, like a one instruction, well, I guess it's two, play and the ratio, right? That if you gave nothing else to a family with a child that was having externalizing behaviors that are complex, so, and a lot of times that's where they're coming to us. The other is, I think, is underachievement you know, that may not be paired with these behaviors that you've said at all. And one of the other podcasts I did with um, Dr. Stacy Beller-Stryer was on the nature prescription, and that was spending 20 minutes a day outside playing. So maybe you can pair the two because there's this incredible experience of nature too. So yeah, you've just said some really important things, and this could be like a one-pager that you talk yeah. about with a family when you first meet with them, even before you've made a diagnosis or a prescription, you can say, hey, let's start with this while we're doing other stuff. Absolutely. And I say to families, it's good for everybody in the family. So a lot of times families will say, well, we have multiple kids. So how are we going to do this? And I will say, you know, it's actually the absolute best if everybody in the family gets the therapeutic dose. Like it's actually best if you're lucky enough to live in a home with a couple of caregivers where it's like one caregiver kind of handles everybody and then you get your one-on-one -on -one time here and then we swap. We have five minutes with everybody and we swap. Whether you have ADHD or you have a behavior problem or you don't have a behavior problem, this stuff inoculates all kids against stress, pressure, anxiety. Like this is the foundation for almost any kind of concern you might have and all kids benefit from the boost of, wow, I got my mom or dad's attention for five full minutes a day, every day. And, and that's a key thing about special time. So if you do recommend special time, I am very clear. I try to make a point of not forgetting this piece of it. So you said there were two pieces, there might be three. And that is special time is not a reward. Special time is not a reward. It is non-contingent, meaning we can talk about rewards and reward systems. And I said at the podcast last time, big believer in reward systems and incentive systems. I really am. This is not a reward. This is like medicine. This is like brushing our teeth. This is like going to the bathroom. We do it every day for our health. It is for the health of our relationship. It is for the health of our family. It is for the development of internal speech. It is not like, oh, you did good today. We'll do special time. Quality time and social rewards are important. 
Special time is not a reward. Special time is a very powerful communication about you have a good day. I love you. (laughs) We're doing this. You have a bad day. I love you. We're doing this. You listened perfectly every second of sports practice. Cool. Doesn't matter. We're doing special time no matter what, because it's like taking vitamins. It's like brushing teeth. We do it as like a preventative measure so we don't get 100 cavities. It's not about like, oh, you did good. So now we do special time. And the other thing that I say sometimes now I'm like adding on and adding on and adding on. But these are quick things to say. The five minutes a day is much more powerful than two hours on the weekend. Mm. So the dose, a daily dose. And that's right. This is I'm having my own internal speech as we're doing this. And I'm thinking back to an episode I did with Heather Forkey about trauma and resilience. And one of the strategies for families where there has been a lot of trauma, resilience building is based on play. This very thing that you're talking about so has so many ramifications. And I think about for partners, also at the end of the day, having that five minutes for your partner Yeah, totally. It's good for both of us to think about, you know, let's just do something that makes us feel good together for five minutes and we do it every day. It's that purposeful paying attention to the important people in your life. I love that. I love that. Should we maybe hop to a couple of other skills? Because we could, okay, we've just done a whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, special time is, again, it's an intervention that I really took for granted in graduate school, or I didn't really understand that it can be incredibly powerful. It's one of those skills that families will come back and be like, I didn't do it. It didn't work. But that's because if you don't kind of set the stage or the groundwork, it won't work. It's kind of like timeout. You know, like people are like, timeout doesn't work. And it's like, well, timeout does work. But if you don't understand the why of how it works, it won't work because you don't really know how to tweak or do the things you need to do. Same with special time, same with almost all behavioral interventions. If you don't really know why you're doing it or what's the function of it, then, then it won't work. And families are very quick to give up on it. What about, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, middle school teenagers. Is there a way to like, hook them so that they want to do special time. I mean, honestly, special time for me with my kids was often in the car because they were captive audiences. So yeah. And special time really is more for kids like up to eight or nine or 10. Cause by the time they're hitting that zone of life, they're like, this is dumb. I don't want to talk to my mom. You know what I mean? Like they're like, I don't want to do this. So it does start to look different as you pop into those middle school and teenager years. I think that the theme of it is similar, which is Let's have some positive interactions Mm -hmm, across mm -hmm. the course of our day. So the car is a great place to do that. As long as you do sort of make a point to be, even if you just do that silently for yourself, where you're like, I am not going to respond to any of the bids for negativity. You know, teenagers sometimes will put out a bid of like, you know, that's stupid or I'm not going to do it or whatever. And they're, they're, they're baiting you a little bit to get into a negative thing because negative attention is still attention. Us having a dialogue, even if it's like, I'm going to be contrarian, is still a thing. So like, as long as you set a stage for yourself where you're like, I'm not going to get into some sort of power struggle here. My goal is to, for five minutes, not have a power struggle. My goal is for five minutes, you say something contrarian, and I'm just going to kind of go with it. Or I'm going to, I'm going to ignore it. I'm just not even going to, I'm going to, you could different. Yeah. Or you could say, gosh, you are so good at debate. You should be an attorney. Right. So good at that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Or like, and you don't have to do that all the time. Sometimes when kids are being contrarian, you do got to shut it down. But it's about creating intentionally, like you were saying, this mindful moment of like, for five minutes, I'm not going to do that. Do you know what I mean? Just for five minutes, we're going to be in the car and I'm just going to listen to you and tell you you're smart and tell you that I like you and tell you that even when you're being contrarian, you matter to me and I care about your opinions. Because, right teenager, it is a lot of like, your opinions are dumb. You're too young. You don't know. You're not independent. You're sort of independent, but not really. And that's a communication that kids get hit with all the time. You don't have to reinforce that as a parent hundred percent of the time. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. You could pick out five minutes a day where you're like, you know what, right now your opinions do matter a lot to me. And the things that you say is important. Well, yeah, I was thinking a conversation I had with Ken Ginsburg um, about talking to teenagers is you know, sort of this reframe of they are super learners, they're explorers, as opposed to they're a pain and they're oppositional and they're difficult and they're going to take risks and the parents don't matter when in fact they matter most. So I'm thinking about my own time management. And again, honestly, I think each of these executive function could warrant its own 
podcast. Yeah. So um, this may venture into parts three and four. Yeah. Let's talk about time management sure. and, and kind of close with that because I think that's another thing that you could focus on probably right away. Yeah. And and maybe that might be helpful. Yeah. Let me give you another kind of concrete. So special time is a very concrete skill. I know I did a lot of like stage setting and then afterwards kind of su- you know supplementing it, but that is a concrete thing, special time. You could develop a one pager for your office about special time. I do. I have one that I hand out. Another uh, kind of skill like that that you could easily put on a one pager that clicks into sense of time and also like hindsight, foresight, insight, which is another kind of set of executive functions we talked about last time, is an intervention that I call TLC. So TLC does not stand for tender, love, and care. You'll get plenty of that when you do special time. TLC is a very specific way to give instructions. I ask this to family. This is the stage setting I do for TLC. I ask families, hey, if you give a command, if you say something like, go brush your teeth, what are the odds? What is the percent odd that your child will do that? What is 90% chance, 2% chance, 50% chance? What chance do you think the first time you say, go brush your teeth, your child is going to comply? So Leah, if you were going to take a guess, what would you say? Well, I'm thinking about me. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe parents would say 50% of the time. Yeah. Sometimes, and especially if they're in the office with you and they're distressed, they'll be like, never or 50% or 25%. The data actually is about 75%. So the data is about three out of four times, quote unquote, the average kid or the typical kid will comply with the request the first time. So that's not a kid with ADHD. That's not a kid with disruptive behavior problems. It's not, that's like, you know, whatever. I hate the word average, but like the data suggests that the mean number is 75%, that if you issue four commands, three of them will be followed. So that's not 100%. When we're training up compliance, we're not shooting for 100%. 100% is not a realistic goal. About 75% is what we're shooting for first time. Now, what do you think happens to that 75% if you repeat yourself? So three out of four times, we should get compliance. One out of four times, we won't. If you issue the command a second time, what do you think the likelihood of compliance is? We're going from 75%, maybe 85%. Honestly, like you were saying, I'm thinking about myself. If you repeated yourself to me, an adult person, I would be like, oh, Lee really means it. She needs me to do this. Like I would be like, oh, okay. And it would up my, kids are not like this. It's very counterintuitive. When you repeat yourself, it drops to about 50. If you wow. repeat yourself, yeah. If you repeat yourself again, it's like 18% decline. This is a big deal. Yeah. Because somehow I thought if I said it, and maybe that's why it gets referred to as a broken record or nagging, that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. But I try to pair it with like data or a story about your intuition sometimes is the opposite of actually what needs to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's because adults don't work the same way that kids do. The intuition is, well, if I just say it more or louder, or more insistently, the odds that it's going to happen are going to increase. But the data are very clear. It's exactly the opposite. Each and every time you repeat yourself, what you're really doing is training your child. I didn't mean it the first time. What you're really doing is telling your child with your words and your actions, the first time doesn't mean it. I'm not serious until I say it three times and I'm yelling. So listeners can't see, but my eyebrows just went up and I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because... That's sort of what you're doing, right? The first time is like a warm up. And so what you're really doing is saying like, every time I repeat myself, it's just another opportunity for you to blow me off until I really mean it, which is time number four or five when I'm yelling or time number four and five where I'm threatening to take away your game or you know what I mean? And so if you want kids to do it the first time, you really should only say it once. And that's what TLC is about. So TLC stands for a very specific way to repeat yourself. It's actually not repeating yourself. It's offering some information about what is about to happen. I say, go brush your teeth. How long do you think it takes to know whether brush your teeth is going to happen? Like if you say to a child and like there's going to be compliance or not. Five minutes. Oh, way less. You know whether bodies are in motion to go do what you just said or not within five seconds. You can count it out in your brain. You know, as a parent, know whether you want to deal with that reality or not is a very different thing. But you know, when you say go brush your teeth, you know, you can count it on your head. Five, four, three, two, one. This person is either moving to brush their teeth or they're not. Compliance is happening or it's not. It is that black and white. So what I mean by that is anything that is not a body in motion to go brush your teeth 
is non-compliance. Sometimes non-compliance looks like, nope, I hate teeth. I'm not doing it. Sometimes non-compliance looks like, uh-huh, I'll do it in a minute. Sometimes non-compliance looks like, oh, what? I can't hear you. Sometimes non-compliance looks like, um, five more minutes, please. Sometimes non-compliance looks like I'm going to fall out and have a full temper tantrum. Non-compliance can look like a lot of stuff. It's anything that is not compliance. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Compliance is my body's in motion to go brush teeth. And so if you recognize within five to 10 seconds, I'll give, I'll give kids 10, I can be kind, five to 10 seconds. If there isn't a body in motion within five to 10 seconds, that means you are now in a zone where you can offer some information about what's going to happen next. Do not say the thing again. Do not say, hey, I said go brush your teeth and I meant right now. You are going to do this almost like a robot. I'm giving you the script now. Go brush your teeth. And then you repeat the command using TLC in a very specific way. If you don't go brush your teeth in the next 10 seconds, we'll turn the iPad off for the rest of the day. If you don't go brush your teeth in the next 10 seconds, tomorrow we won't watch any Netflix. If you don't go brush your teeth in the next 10 seconds, tomorrow you'll go to bed 15 minutes earlier. TLC is a repetition of the task, an offering of time limit. So this is where a sense of time comes in and an offering of what will happen should you not comply. <laughs> consequence. Task, limit, consequence. TLC. If you don't get in the car in the next 10 seconds, and you do want to keep that time small because kids have a poor sense of time, you're offering some information about, I don't mean in an hour. I don't mean in 10 minutes. I really mean now. I'm trying to give you a, like an opportunity to get it together and start going and get into motion. But you don't want to offer a big time. You want to offer something small. And then the consequence, this is what will happen. And now you've offered your child a choice. You may comply or you may receive the consequence. Your choice. It's, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not mean. I'm not mean, mom. I'm offering you some information about what's going to happen here. You have a choice now. You may do the thing I said, or you may get the consequence. 100% up to you. Whatever you say goes. And doing command issuing in this way does a couple of things. Number one, it cuts down on the negative external speech. I'm only saying the thing I need you to do one time. And it's not yelling and it's not bargaining and it's not escalating and it's not commanding, demanding, punishing, critical. It is, I'm offering you some information. You can comply at that point or I will offer you TLC. And TLC is really the perfect way to issue a warning that is in line with where kids are at developmentally with regards to executive functioning. I'm repeating the task clearly, shortly, succinctly. I'm giving you the time limit, which is an appreciation of your poor sense of time. <laughs> and then I'm telling you about the consequence, which makes all of this very black and white and not gray and fuzzy. TLC is cool because it keeps parents from getting into the why. Oftentimes, I think the other piece that kind of falls apart when we're giving instructions is we as adults, I will be the first person to say this is my number one flaw. It's why you're like, oh, we could have a whole podcast about every single executive function because I'm not succinct. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to issuing commands, succinctness and conciseness is essential. I think oftentimes families, when they're starting to repeat commands, they're like trying to be like, well, we have to get in the car because otherwise we're going to be late. And if we're late, then we're going to be embarrassed. And like, we're going to miss the whatever. And you really like whatever. And so this is why we're doing it. The why doesn't matter. The why doesn't matter when you're issuing information. After you do it, I'll tell you why. You want to know about dental hygiene? I'm there for you. You know what I mean? Like when I say, hey, let's go brush teeth. If you don't brush your teeth, in the next 10 seconds, we'll go to bed 10 minutes earlier tomorrow. And kids will go, why? And it's like, no, I offered you. You have the choice. You can do whatever you want with the information. After you brush your teeth, I'll tell you all about cavities and all about why dental hygiene is important and why we should brush teeth and what's important about that for your long-term oral health and overall health. But when I'm issuing the command is not the time to get into the why. So what happens, and that's where the name of this podcast comes from, what happens when the TLC doesn't work? You're going to do uh, the command now. So yeah, the kid, uh, the kid has the meltdown. Yeah. Then what? Sure, sure. Great question. Because again, this is your job as a pediatric provider is to set the expectation of what works means. TLC does work a lot, like work. And so this definition of work that you were talking about, I think, is immediate compliance or like, oh, okay, I'll go brush teeth. You're serious. I got it. Working doesn't necessarily mean there won't be a meltdown. There might be a meltdown. You won't know if TLC is working until tomorrow when you ask to brush teeth again. 
working might re- working might result in a meltdown. We have a dynamic here. The dynamic is you say go brush teeth. I say five more minutes. You say no, I mean now. I say, but please, you say, if you don't brush your teeth right this second, wow, well, ah, we're gonna, I'm gonna give you spanking. No, I hate spanking. You know what I mean? And then it goes back and forth and back and forth. That's our normal dynamic. So when you change the script, I don't like that because our normal dynamic gives me equal power to you. Like we're going back and forth. So when you do TLC and you say, if you don't brush teeth in the next 10 seconds, we'll go to bed early tomorrow, there might be a meltdown. Um, Avoiding a meltdown is not the marker of success. The marker of success is when I ask you to brush teeth tomorrow and I say, if you don't brush your teeth in the next 10 seconds, does my child stand up and go brush their teeth? Behavior change is almost never immediate. Do you know how long it takes to change a habit? Do you know, do you have like a time span that a habit? What is it? Like six weeks of it's, repetition? It's, something well, it's, like about, that? it's about three, actually. It's about 21 days. Oh, good. good. Yeah. So that means know, I can, uh, yeah. that means I can start exercising every day if I do it every day for 21 days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, All right. You know, I'm on it. But it's, but, but parents oftentimes are, are in a zone, like what you were just saying, where it's like, this didn't work because we had a meltdown. Well, you're actually not going to know if it works for 21 days. Do you know what I mean? Like you're actually mm-hmm. working is a future oriented thing to build a skill, to change a habit, to change a dynamic to change a pattern of communication, that is not going to work immediately. So this is what I mean when I say expectation setting. Oftentimes people say timeout doesn't work. Oftentimes people say ignoring doesn't work. Oftentimes people say reward systems don't work. Oftentimes people say special time doesn't work because it's not instant. Antibiotics don't work if you only take them one day. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's a good That's a good analogy. I, I like that because um, people would understand that and I think physicians would too. Okay. Exactly. There's a lot of things that don't work one time. You need to do them a bunch of times to to shift the the flavor in your family means that you got to do the intervention and stick with it a lot of times before you determine, oh, this doesn't work. Yeah. And do you have um, a one pager for TLC? Yeah, I do. I can send it to you and you can. can Yeah, we can share. We can share. So in the interest of time, because, um, we have so much to say. I'm, I'm jotting down notes so I don't forget. I think we could easily do a whole episode just on working memory. Mm-hmm. Um, we could easily do an episode purely on how to do a timeout, which I learned from you when you spent two years in the office with me going in to talk to parents about you know what this is going to look like because it's so distressing to have conflict. And maybe the mindset is teaching children about expectations that they need to meet in the world to, to kind of thrive and succeed takes time. It's not a one and done. And right. I, you know, I think so much about what you have outlined. I mean, two things today, special time and TLC. I mean, those are two concrete things that you could begin to offer a family right from the get-go. Now, maybe you wouldn't have to take an hour like we've done to really get into it. But I think if it was internal for me that I really understood how to, I mean, it sounds to me like the first place to start is with special time, you know, do this for a week, two weeks, come back and talk to me. And then we'll talk about command setting and, and how to do that. And those are skills we could also pair with Let's see how we're doing. We're going to let the school know we're trying some things. And, you know, maybe we're going to consider medication, but let's try a couple things first. Yeah. And I I think think that those are skill setting strategies that I think we would love to have a therapist that could do that. But without that, there is some of it we could do. And it is a prescription. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly right. Special time is a really good one to talk about, like like a prescription, like a dose, like a medicine. This is something we do every day. It's a preventative measure, just like when we brush our teeth or when we, you know, take our vitamins or when we drink milk or whatever, you know what I mean? The other anticipatory guidance things that you're offering at some of these visits, special time can definitely be one of those things. And I think it does make sense to parents to to frame it that way. And it makes sense coming from you even more so than coming from me to kind of frame it in that language. Yeah, I, I love that. Well, I'm going to wrap it up today because I know you're a very busy person. Um, And okay, now we have to have part three, (laughs) working memory. (laughs) So I'm going to tantalize listeners that there's more to come. So 
Well, listen, thank you so much. Have a fabulous day. And I appreciate everything you do. I love your enthusiasm. It just makes me so happy. (laughs) So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love being here. All right, take care. I hope you had out your paper and pencil today because there were just so many pearls and I'm going to try and capture them here. But if not, you might want to take a listen again and take a listen to episode 88 as well. So here are my takeaways. Number one, oh my gosh, thank you again, Dr. Cullinan. Number two, for a quick refresher, regardless of what you call it, attention deficit disorder, hyperactive, inattentive, or combined type, at its core, it's all about executive function. Number three, executive function allows for you to shift, adjust, and adapt. Executive function takes skills to the next level planning, organizing, pausing, considering all the things. Think air traffic control, an orchestra conductor, or a coach of a sports team. Number four, expectation setting with parents and teachers is key. It should be the first thing you do. The kid in front of you is not defective or broken, but needs to work on skills. This patient, this kid, has capacity, sometimes exceptional capacity for attention, but the attention needs to meet the demand, so they may need to learn how to shift. The world-class home is not built for executive function delays or differences. Our job is to curate the environment to help kids tolerate, I loved as she described this, brain chemical boredom. You know, when kids are doing something that just lights them up, it is a chemical high and thrill. That's why they want to keep doing it. So sometimes doing the things that are hard induces that chemical boredom. Number five, school sets us up to be good at all things when none of us are. Adults don't choose what they aren't good at. If I'm not good at statistics, I'm sure not going to be a statistics professor. What we can do is help kids practice on purpose, the things that are boring or hard. Number six, let's talk about internal speech. This is what I'm doing right now. While listening to external speech, I have my own internal speech and dialogue, but, and I hope it's true most of the time, I pause and reflect before responding. Okay, not always. What adults do when kids blurt out is to ramp up external speech. Stop that. No. What's wrong with you? Guess what? That doesn't help. We double down, offer more rule-based instruction. I could just feel the pressure as she described it. I was overwhelmed. Number seven. Okay, back it up. Where do we start? Special time. This is a non-contingent, not a reward, daily dose of 100% purposeful, one-to-one adult-to-child time of, wait for it, five minutes a day that's it. And while we are doing this, we are building internal speech skills and building the relationship. Number eight, this inoculates all kids and uses John Gottman's golden ratio of five to one, five positives to neutralize one negative behavior or interaction. But what we do is the opposite, 14 negative to one negative behavior. Number nine, This looks like the special time in the language. I love that idea. Look at your Lego thing. That is so cool. Wow, look at that drawing. Tell me about it. You are doing such an amazing job of keeping your body still. Listen, reflect, and praise. By the way, this works for adult relationships too. Who doesn't want to be listened to and praised? Number 10, one more skill time management, and behaviors if this is what a kid sounds like when given a task. Just a minute later, nope, teach and use a technique called TLC. T stands for task, L, limit, C, consequence. When you give a command, give it once, not 10 times. Repeating it over and over just makes it worse, and there's less likeliness for compliance. It goes from a typical compliance of following direction from about 75% of the time to less than 50% success. Number 12, your intuition to say it more is not spot on. 
Louder and more is not helpful. Think nagging. Just say it once, and if no action, name the task, T, offer time expectations of about 5 to 10 seconds. In other words, right now, that's your L, and then the consequence if it doesn't happen, the C, TLC. If you don't, whatever it is that you want to be done, but based on Colleen's example, for example, brush your teeth in the next 10 seconds, you lose the privilege of a bedtime story tonight. Number 13, don't offer the whys of why it's so important to brush your teeth. You can do that after the task has been completed. I mean, you'll get lost in the explanations for all the reasons why. So save it for later. Number 14, expect this to not go well. Just anticipate. And a meltdown is not failure. Get ready for three weeks of practicing. Consider, like antibiotics, one dose doesn't do it. Number 15. Want more? Stay tuned for part three. Yes, I said a part three. There's just so much stuff. We'll cover hindsight, insight, and foresight, and working memory. She is just the best, and I love these conversations. Thank you for what you're doing. The more I think about it, the more I know how much time pediatric clinicians spend trying to figure out how to help kids and families thrive and succeed. And I mean, it's our goal. And to find joy in all of that, sometimes it is daunting. So hang in there. I'm there for you. And take a listen to all of Colleen's episodes. The one on anxiety and depression are just brilliant as well. And step up your game. Take care and look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.